Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is AppSats Radio, help for partners after sexual betrayal. We talk about it here. Betrayal trauma. We are AppSat certified clinical partner specialists and coaches who have been trained to help navigate you through this crisis. There is nothing we won't talk about. Sometimes listeners want to know about triggers. I was dealing with the aftermath of my husband's affairs, and he still works the same job that he did when he was acting out. It's a job that allows him to hide his goings-on and one that he stated was the previous trigger for his acting out. The whole 16 and a half years we've been together, he's acted out. In the beginning, what I thought it was was just pornography. Um, It ended up being, I found out two and a half years ago, he had been with multiple prostitutes. I only found out a very small portion of that until about a month ago. How do you cope with all of that when you still have to deal with unavoidable triggers? Well, of course you would feel traumatized by hearing all that information. And I got to tell you, Stephanie, that's a staggered disclosure. That's finding out little bits and pieces about your husband's behavior throughout a time period, making you feel insecure, unsure, and unsafe. So what we got to do is set up a situation whereby you get with a specialist to do a formal disclosure so you can hear everything at one time in a safe environment. You know, it's really tough when your spouse who's an addict is in a situation whereby they really have a lot of opportunities to act out. Now, the truth of the matter is a spouse doesn't need opportunities. They'll take opportunities. But I've worked with many a woman who, you know, their spouse was out of town more days than not, worked overseas was in the military, had affair partners in the office. Um, And when that happens, you need really good boundaries to make yourself feel safe. These aren't boundaries to control him. They're not boundaries saying, you can't do this, you can't do that. These are boundaries that say, what I need to feel safe is I need you to send me uh, pictures of you in your hotel room every night. What I need to feel safe is I need you to request, uh, a pro- you know, for a promotion or to change um, departments so that your fresh start can be my fresh start. Now, I know an addict or... Uh, Another therapist or uh, perhaps another coach might say, hey, uh, that's you trying to control the addict. But really, when you look at your boundaries, it's about what makes you feel safe. In this situation with Stephanie, she didn't feel safe because her husband ran a route. 
And it was very easy for him to go place to place to place to place and stop off with prostitutes. And so she also knew that it would be really important for him to maintain their job, his job for the sake of their family. So you got two opposing beliefs. You've got, you know, we need stability financially, and he's making really good money versus I don't know that I want him out and about um, traveling to and from because I don't know that I can trust that. So that took some early couples recovery work. That took us being together and talking about what he felt he could do to provide more safety for her. And I, I'm a believer and you never want to work harder than your clients. This is hard, hard work. And so I give my clients the responsibility of figuring out what it is that they might need or want. And here's what I know. They do a way better job than I would anyway. You know, asking an addict what he can do to make her feel safe may sound like a terribly difficult um, assignment. But when it's done in the context of a really safe office with a therapist that wants the coupleship to work, and I'm helping the, the ground rules um, so that nobody's being attacked and nobody's getting defensive. Well, if defensiveness occurs, they rein it back in. When, when you got that kind of environment, it is much more conducive to people being able to think about what it is they need. So, if you're somebody who wants to work with a professional that understands partner trauma, understands sexual addiction, then it's important for you to, you know, call and interview some of these people, look up their requirements, you know, check in with them, figure out what's a good fit for you. And I promise you, you can find that. I was talking with a woman today, and I, I see the husband in group, and I see the wife individually, and, and I'm doing some trauma work with her, and she said, Carol, we need to get back into couples counseling. And I said, well, you know, let's think about some people that are really good in the area, and then you can talk with your husband and the which one works the best for you because they needed insurance and they needed some specialized times. And um, I said, now you, you guys, you were going to a couple of different marital counselors, weren't you? And, and she said, yes. She said, well, the first one was um, a marital counselor that did sex therapy. But she was part of that organization that accredits um, sex educators, counselors, and therapists. And they didn't believe in sex addiction. And she was actually saying things to us like, well, it, wouldn't it be okay? Well, first of all, she said, 
I don't believe in sex addiction. I do believe in problematic compulsive behavior. So I said, well, that doesn't matter. She didn't have to call it sex addiction. But then the next thing she told me was that her counselor said, well, you're really wanting to work on your sex life, and yet it's been so tainted by affairs and pornography. How's about if you two watch porn together? Now, she didn't understand the triggering of a partner, and she didn't understand that that would not be something that a sex addict could differentiate. A sex addict is not going to be able to say, well, if I'm watching porn with my wife, um, it'll be a whole different experience for me than if I were doing it by myself. So that's where, again, you've really got to work with counselors and make sure that they understand what you're going through. And if they don't, you know, it's okay to say this just isn't working out. And find somebody who gets gets it. I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, aka Carol the Coach, and here's where I'm gonna segue right into if you're looking for somebody who does good couples work, go to AppSats. You know, that's who sponsors this show. That is capital A, capital P, capital S, capital A, T, S, dot org. They're all caps. And when you go to that site, put in your zip code or your city, and it will identify people uh, that hopefully are close enough to where you live. Now, what I know about this field is the same as what I know about psychiatry in general, Uh, and that is that there are not enough good psychiatrists, good therapists, good coaches to go around and meet the needs of people that have relational issues, uh, psychiatric needs, uh, trauma, anxiety, depression, but at least get yourself to the site to see if somebody can work with you. I was talking with a client. um, Actually, her husband reminded me of this because he's in my group. And he was telling the guys, yeah, we were listening to this podcast. It's my other podcast, sexhelpwithcarolthecoach.com. And um, that's on Blog Talk also, and you can get that through iTunes. He said, we were listening to this podcast, and we both looked at each other because we were really wounded and I really traumatized my wife and I wanted to make it right. So I'm listening to podcasts. I'm trying to understand about my addiction and I want to understand about her feelings. And this guy said, I looked at her and I said, why can't we find a Carol? Why isn't there a Carol in our neighborhood? So they went ahead and Googled me. Um, just assuming, I guess, that I worked on one of the coasts or something, the fact that I had this radio show, and I literally am 12 minutes from their home. She emailed me on a Sunday morning. I just happened to be at the computer, so I violated my own rule, my own boundary, and I emailed her back and said, I'm booked solid for three weeks, but I'll give you the first cancellation. By that night, I was telling her I had three cancellations the next day. That never happens. They picked the best cancellation. 
because they're both in the medical field. And that's all she wrote. They started working with me individually and in couples therapy, and he's in group, and um, they are so much better. But they had to go through the disclosure. They had to um, do the hard work, get honest. Uh, and, And I say it was very, very hard work because he was somebody who had, and I'm going to tie it into the beginning of what we're talking about, had had many, 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 many affairs at work. And he was the head of his company. So to lead the company would have been a really difficult thing for him to do. And on top of that, for his wife to know that every time he went to work, he was facing six, seven, ten, twelve. I don't remember how many affair partners were still there at work. But you know what? They worked that out. They worked that out real well. If you really are motivated to keep your marriage together, to improve communication, to develop empathy, and to negotiate and compromise, you can make your marriage work. That's the good news. Now, I agree. Both people need to be able to do it. And more importantly, if you don't always have the skills to do it, you got to learn them and practice them. But once that occurs, I promise you that um, miracles happen in this work all the time. People are so ready to change and develop a new lifestyle that they, they're motivated. They're motivated to get better. Now, today, we're going to be talking about how do you work with kids, you know, how to support and protect kids after finding out that a significant family member struggles with problematic sexual behavior. Now, personally, I find that this is a tough topic because so much of it depends on the individual needs of the children the ages, what they may or may not already know, because we know the kids hear things that parents don't even have a clue. Many of the kids that I've worked with, they actually are the, the ones that found the pornography or found the texting or they were contacted by affair partners. I mean, unfortunately, they are really the casualty of this situation because oftentimes they're in the dark. So we have Jessica Eden's on, who's going to be talking about how do you navigate through this tough situation. And much of her work is dedicated to supporting children, parents, and um, the whole family system to get through the pain and the tension and the stress that comes with problematic sexual behavior. I was so excited to get her on because she actually has helped out with creating some lunch and learns for our staff, for APSATS clinicians and coaches, and um, we use some of her materials in our training program. And what we know to be true is we need to keep talking with professionals about how they can help the family in general and specifically the kids. So, Jessica, welcome to partner betrayal recovery how are you i'm good how are you doing wonderful i was talking very much earlier about how important it is 
to really work with families and with the coupleship to negotiate and compromise what will make people feel safe. And, you know, you have really extensively worked with children and their families to to decide what would make kids feel safe when there's all this conflict and crisis in their family. So tell me a little bit about how you got involved in this field. Yeah, that's a good question. A lot of people ask me that because this is kind of a unique field. I think everyone has their own interesting story of how they got here. And so for me, um, I really joined a private practice clinic with the intention of working with domestic violence victims. My background is working with mothers and children affected by all types of abuse. And so coming in and beginning my work in the sex addiction field, I was immediately fascinated with kind of the similar dynamics that I saw between my background with domestic violence and how some of these families show up in such a similar way. And some of these kids are showing up in a similar way. Um, And so I really just began to be intrigued and curious. And so I've been getting as much training as I possibly can around the areas of sex addiction and betrayal trauma. And what I found is that there is, no support or no knowledge around how to work with children or the family in working with problematic sexual behavior or sex addiction. And so that recently now has been my passion is kind of exploring, talking to other people, talking to families, talking to partners, talking to children, and just hearing their story and starting to understand what's been going on out there and now moving forward to what can we do to support? How can I now share my knowledge and my understanding of this systemic problem with more people so that we can stop this cycle? We can stop these children growing up in dysfunctional kind of environments. Um, So it's an exciting time because I think we're moving forward. You know, you're exactly right. It's exciting, and yet it's filled with so much drama, trauma, and crisis. Yeah. So let me just ask you, and I know this is a loaded question, but <laughs> what can a partner, because uh, we've got some sex addicts that listen to this show, but what could a partner do to protect their children from the impact of betrayal trauma? I mean, what can they do? Yeah, that's that's the question I get asked most often is I have partners come in my office in tears because their world has been shattered. It's been put upside down. But what's amazing is these women come in and they want to know, what can I do to protect my kid? What can I do to make this not rock their world? And so one of the early things that I talk to partners about is this understanding that they're going through the trail trauma. This is a real thing. This is hard. So it's normal for partners to cry. It's normal for them to be angry, be irritable, be shell-like, want to sleep more, have depression, have anxiety. These women are going through so many different things that one of the first things you can do to help support your kid is to let them know something's not right. 
You don't need to tell them what's going on, but just an understanding of, hey, mom's going through a hard time. I'm, I'm stressed out at work. I mean, you can use whatever examples you want, but one of the early things is just alerting your kids that, yes, something's going on, and no, it has nothing to do with them. Because so often children are looking for evidence around themselves. What are they doing wrong? What's going on with them? And so a partner may be upset. They must they had a bad day. They're just exhausted and they might be irritable. And then your kid comes home from school and maybe has an innocent comment of a grade they got or something happened. And a partner will incongruently respond to a child. And so it's really important to just tell them, just communicate at an age-appropriate level, hey, I'm having a bad day. It's okay to cry in front of your kids. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to emote in front of them as long as you provide a package or kind of a narrative around what's going on for you. So then they're not left to understand it for themselves. That's where it gets scary and lonely for a lot of kids. Yeah, and Jessica, you mentioned such a, a good point, and one of the things that we know is that kids are egocentric. They always think exactly. life revolves around them. So when there's exactly tension and conflict or mom and dad are yelling about affairs or whatever, even if they know they're not a part of it intellectually, intuitively they go, how did I cause this? What could I have done differently? Yep. How could I have made it better? And they just immediately see themselves as part of the problem. So I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Now, you and I both know, because we're both APSATS um, certified providers, we know that a partner, when the discovery occurs, she goes into trauma brain, and she experiences oh, absolutely. symptoms. Yeah, they look just like post-traumatic stress, if indeed they're not post-traumatic stress. And so when you were saying to our listening audience that it's okay to cry in front of your child, it's okay to emote, um, yeah. help our partners to know what might be too much. Yeah, that's a great question. I get that one asked a lot. I think the important thing that I want people to take away from this is the packaging aspect. You need to narrate to your child what's going on for you so that they understand, like, one, it's not about them, and that emotions aren't scary. Where you're kind of holding that narrative is about yourself. One of the most important things that you can do is not to talk poorly about your partner. And I know that's so difficult. It's so hard because these women are in so much pain. But really keeping your story just on your path. You trying not to speak ill of their father is one of the best gifts that you can give your kids because chaos and confusion and um, covert anxiety within them as soon as you start kind of going into that arena. And so I really just coach my partners in talking about their own feelings. I'm feeling sad today. I'm feeling lonely today. I'm having a hard day. I just need some quiet time. I need to go take a bath and 
and cry a little bit, or I'm really angry, so I'm going to go work out a little bit. You need to just narrate your feelings and what you're doing to kind of ease them or express them without belittling, without giving them information about what's going on. I think that's another huge question that I get a lot of the time is, what do I say to my kid or how much do I tell them? And what we know about trauma brain is you kind of, I'm I'm talking like you have a lot of control over those early days after discovery. And so I want to just caveat all of what I'm saying is those early days right after discovery, moms are doing the best that they can. And that's all that we can ask for. This is not meant to shame anyone or make anyone feel bad about what they may have said to their child in a moment of trauma or hurt. This is about moving forward with the information um, given. And so if that's happened to you, if you've maybe said something inappropriate or, or maybe said kind of not nice things about your partner to your child, that can be really helpful to circle back and talk to your child openly like this is I shouldn't be talking about your dad this way this is your dad that's you have a relationship with them so really keeping clean on your side of the street is going to create a safe environment for your child to really feel like they can understand or maybe ask you those questions that they have well and I love the fact that you just said that it's important to circle back around because one of the best things that a parent can do if they've made a mistake, if they've emoted too much, if they've said something they shouldn't, is to circle back around and say, you know, I was really mad and I'm sorry that I said that about your dad because you do deserve to love him even though he and I are having problems. And when a parent can do that, when they can show vulnerability and that they made a mistake, really reinforces to the child that they can share mistakes too. Oh, it breeds vulnerability. It breeds confidence and intimacy and safety in a relationship. That's huge. So now what we've got partners that their, their brain races. They have what we call ruminating and racing thoughts and They don't feel like anything is safe. And one of the things that I say to the women that I work with repeatedly, I go, this is not fair of me to say this, but I want you to know that it has always been my belief that it is the mother who can keep her child safe. And so I've got to ask you, do you have any concerns about your husband and your own child? And that's when they may share some concerns, physical concerns, sexual abuse concerns, um, verbal abuse. So what would you tell a partner who may be worried that something has occurred between her husband and the child? Yeah, yeah. That's a pretty common one that I received, too, is just when you're a partner, your brain is in trauma mode, and you are looking to protect and not be hurt anymore. And your children are right in front. And so these random memories I find tend to come back to partners where they kind of 
maybe didn't register them before and that now that the sex addiction has come to light, they kind of wonder, they have those unsettling questions from years ago. And so what I normally do is educate and normalize that a lot of partners feel that way. A lot of them have those kind of icky memories in their gut where they don't quite know if that was a a normal thing that their partner did or if it was kind of weird or if there should be um, further action taken. And so it's really early on about education and normalizing some of those things, but also getting them connected to the right help. If there's a gut feeling that something's wrong. Um, in our practice, we, we work with polygraphers. Um, so you can create kind of polygraph questions in a certain fashion to kind of ease people's minds. But a lot of my work, too, just as working with partners, I work with a lot of addicts kind of understanding age-appropriate parenting techniques because a lot of times it's mismatched and they're they demonstrate immaturity. They're just not sure of what's okay and what's not okay. And so those early sessions where moms come in talking about concerning behaviors can be really fruitful down the road when working with the family as a system to kind of create, correct excuse me, some of those inappropriate parenting techniques. Well, and in actuality, oftentimes um, those ruminating racing thoughts kind of go off the track and they start thinking about what's the worst thing that could happen. And we know that when a person has discovered, yeah, when they've discovered that that there is um, addiction involved, sexual addiction, their brain gets hijacked and they aren't necessarily able to reasonably look at things. And I'm always telling women in general, you know, these are normal women, women that have not had the trauma of sexual addiction, but I'm always saying trust your gut. So if all of a sudden somebody is traumatized and they're, they're dealing with the worst thing that's ever happened to them, partner betrayal, they may really not know if they can trust their gut. And so... What I heard you saying is that they should find a professional that they can talk to about it and go back and forth. And mm-hmm. then if they have a suspicion, they really do need to report it to Child Absolutely. Protection Services. They don't have to have proof. They just have to have enough no. concern that um, they want it investigated. They want, they want to make sure everybody's safe. Yeah, they just have enough to set out an alert. And I think talking with a professional that is aware of child development, is aware of parenting, and does have some background in sex addiction training, I think can be so helpful because you're absolutely right. Women get hijacked, and it is hard because your world is turned upside down, and you've been trusting your gut for so long, and now your gut's really on the table. And so it is helpful to have a clinician that people can trust. And and honestly, I get questions and consultations from people all across the country that are asking about their gut and is this normal, is this okay? And really that work is about calming people down. And I think it is worth mentioning that a lot of 
partners that I work with, they themselves have sexual trauma from their own childhood. And so sometimes, sometimes, I really want to be clear, sometimes that does shade their projection or what they think is going on for their own child and their own relationship. And so that needs to be addressed. I think partners don't realize how much that stuff can come out once you find out that your son is engaged in sex addiction. I think that that's a really valuable and a a support that a lot of these women need too, to just be able to calm down and address what may be their own issues versus what is, what is something alerting about your child now that maybe needs to be developed further or reported to CPS? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I believe you said you get calls from all over the country because this is a very specialized area and it's a specialized situation. And, And so I'm going to ask you, what do you believe are some of the warning signs that a partner should be looking for if there's a potential for sexual abuse or molestation? Yeah, I think so sexual abuse and molestation are so difficult um, because they show up differently in little boys and little girls. They show up differently in all different age ranges. And so this is where it is helpful to vet Um, or just talk with a child mental health specialist about what is okay and what is appropriate normally. Um, Children that are kind of secretive, quiet, recluse, um, a lot of stomach aches, a lot of internalized, unexplained illnesses, oftentimes that's a sign of anxiety and depression early on. And so, those are really the the first kind of line of defense that I talk with any um, parent about of what, how is your kid normally? Do they get sick a lot? Do they feel nervous a lot? Are they in their room a lot? Do they isolate? Now this is with younger children because teens are definitely going to be recluse. They're definitely going to have their alone time. Um, but I think it's important to just look at other kids and then look at your own and see if there is something different, if there is something off. Most of the time, children don't understand that what has happened to them was bad or was, they understand it's bad, but not sexual abuse. Oftentimes, I think we think that it's going to, we have an idea of what sexual abuse looks like and in actuality, Children think it's play. They don't know any different. And so you really can watch how your child plays with other kids, how they play with you, if they're inappropriate, if they ask to touch other kids, if they want other kids to touch them. Um, I think those are some good indicators that somewhere along the line, this has been normalized for your child and to be normalized. So those are kind of some light... Go ahead. Well, I was going to say absolutely. And and so those are some of the basic signs that you would look for. And, and of course, a mom knows her child more than yeah. anyone. And yet, again, because she's in so much distress, she may not 
she may fear that she can't trust herself. And so it's yeah. always important for a partner not to do this by herself, but to, to find a professional that can help evaluate that. And i got to tell you, Jessica, probably one in every maybe 20 disclosures that I do, molestation does come out because what we know is people who have problematic compulsive sexual behavior are not necessarily pedophiles, but they have done something inappropriate with their child almost because of the addiction um, getting worse and worse and worse and escalating in intensity and frequency. And so it really is an important topic for moms to be aware of, you know. doesn't yeah. happen in most cases, but it happens in enough that, but it again, happens. moms have to keep yeah. their kids safe. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the other big questions that I get asked is just about normal sexual development and how much children should be aware of sex or masturbation or their bodies or body parts. And I think with a lot of these addicts that we work with, they have an immature view of sexuality and they have kind of inadvertently given that view to their children. And so I can meet with a child and immediately kind of understand, oh, you've been exposed to sexualized images or sexualized conversation too early on where they're comfortable talking about porn. They're comfortable talking about um, their genitalia. And it's not, it's not congruent with where they are at in their development. And so I think that's another important piece that a lot of partners ask about too is just, what should my kids know about sex? Should they be talking about porn? Should they be joking about um, somebody's butt on TV? I think there's a lot of sexualized commentary that addicts just kind of naturally participate in within the family system. And that's one of the ways that I'm seeing that this can be translated generationally, that these little boys hear their dads sexualize people they're hearing that and they think it's normal. They're interpreting things and they're learning to look at the world in an objective way that way. And that's hard to unlearn. It's hard to identify and posit, but I think that's one of the key things that we can do right now. We can start to intervene and just teach these kids. I mean, I'm talking about little boys, but also little girls, that little girls shouldn't be taught that that's okay to be sexually objectified. It's not okay that people are talking that way in your home. And so that's just another aspect of like, I think for partners is looking at what role does sex play in your family? And what I, the population I'm talking about is pretty um, small because for the majority of our families, and I'd love to hear your view on this, but for a lot of the families I work with, Sex is not talked about at all. It is ignored. It is squashed. It is um, kind of quietly shamed in the corner. And so that can be another avenue to kind of open up and talk to kids about because if they don't know, if they're not learning from their parents about it, they're going to find a way to learn about it. And you as a parent want to help control that narrative. 
Oh, that you're exactly right, Theron. And, you know, here we have the most sexualized society because of the Internet. It's affordable, accessible, and anonymous. And kids, by the time, my stats say that by the time a child is 12, he will have seen at least 11 hours of pornography on his own computer or phone because of his peers. You know, his peers share things like that. And and if anybody's raising kids, they are fully aware of the fact that there's a lot of sexting and texting going on amongst children, and they don't even necessarily know that it's sexting or texting. They just know it's fun to share naked body parts in pictures. It's so normalized. And so, yes, I agree 100% that we need to be able to talk about sex in general. And um, I've got kind of a funny story. I My mother shared every body part and what sex was like for me by the time I was eight years old. And I can't say that I handled that appropriately. I, uh, at recess, would share all of my good information with anybody that would listen because I knew it was taboo, but I also wanted them to know that a vagina wasn't called a bird. It was called a vagina or a hot dog was called a penis. And, you know, I just really helped to educate. It's no wonder I'm in this field right now, is it? Um, (laughs) But I had a really good experience. And then when I, when I talked with all my girlfriends, my college roommates, my neighbors, I never met another woman whose mother talked to her openly and honestly about sex. Not one. And these are people that haven't been traumatized. They're just your normal, everyday people. Oh, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's a societal so, issue. I think it's larger than our partners. It's just in general. Sex is everywhere, but we don't talk about it. That's right. So we can be the change we want to see in the world by starting to talk about sex. And, you know, obviously you decide it was probably a little bit too young for my mom to have talked to me in detail about sex. You know, body parts, yes. By the time you're eight years old, you should know the proper names of your body parts. But she probably went a little overboard there. Obviously I had some trouble (laughs) handling it or I wouldn't have... um, you know, disclose so much uh, at recess, but at the same time, um, she had a very healthy concept of sexuality, and and I could tell that. Yeah. And so, sex wasn't seen as something that was dirty. As a matter of fact, after she gave me all the facts, it there was nothing more that I really needed to know until mm. until I was older, and it was appropriate to know more. Now, I'm going to ask yeah. you, since you work with kids, and I'm as you will know, an advocate for disclosures early on after discovery, I find that women don't get the truth soon enough in their relationships. And yeah. I've even worked with women who've had sex addiction in their in their homes for 10, 15, 20 yeah. years and have never had a disclosure. So for anybody yeah. listening right now, um, what would you tell them? What would you tell a partner about, what do you disclose to your child? When and why would you do that? Would you disclose a problem regarding sexual addiction? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. 
So there's different layers to it. I wish that it was a easy cut and dry one size fits all for everyone, but I really believe in kind of addressing each family in their unique way because not all communication flows cleanly through every family. And so early on, just as like discovery is happening and you as the mom are melting down or having your traumatic experience, that to me is the first kind of disclosure. And that, and I use the word disclosure not as like any details, but just signaling to your child, hey, something's not right. Our family's not functioning at 100%. I'm having a hard time. Your dad and I are having a hard time. I'm really sad. I'm really stressed. So that's the first layer is just alerting your child. Hey, I see. I know that there is tension. I know there is stress. I know there is pain in our environment in the family system. That serves the purpose of alerting the child and kind of calming them down like you were talking about. Kids think that they run the world. And so if you let them know, hey, this is not you, this is me, that's the first step in creating kind of a healthy pattern for them. Then as we see, depending on what's happening, um, if you're in recovery with your husband, uh, you're probably pretty busy. You're probably doing therapy pretty frequently. You might do groups. You might be gone at night. And so Lying to your children about what you're doing at night is not helpful because, again, it's creating um, a little bit of a gaslighting environment for your family. And so that's where I say, you know how mom's been sad, you know how I've been upset. I'm going to counseling. I'm learning about my feelings. I have a group of other women that I talk to. You don't have to tell them what it is. I think early on it's important to just, again, Stay in your lane and talk about your own feelings of what's going on for you and how you're feeling. And so, again, you're signaling to your kid, yep, I'm gone a lot, I'm busy, things are changing, but I'm working on it. So, again, it allows the child to not take ownership, not take control, and not feel any responsibility. Then after, and again, I'm assuming that you're in recovery with your partner and uh, moving towards disclosure, and so this is where I'm a firm believer that disclosure to the partner absolutely needs to happen early on. Disclosure to a child does not have to happen early on because a disclosure to a child, the addict needs to be so deep in recovery and so stable that they can really own and edit and show up in a way that will honor the child and not create more chaos in their world. And so a disclosure to, and I guess I'm not even, don't even mean disclosure to children because I, I have a hard time understanding when that's ever in the best interest of a child because I think we can give a good enough or an age-appropriate story to a child and as they're older, this is one of those family things that evolve and change. Just like you were talking with your mom about sex early on, like that conversation could have been maybe a three-part series and escalated as you grew up. And so that's traditionally what I recommend is early on, if your children are young, mom and dad are having a hard time. Dad really hurt mom and mom's having a hard time with it. 
we're going to have to take breaks because we're going to fight a lot and it's really hard to be around each other. So I want you to have special time with your dad and then you get special time with me. That to me is a disclosure in itself too. It's really just letting them know what's going on. So as kids are older and as they're starting their own arousal template and their own romantic patterns, I see partners getting really anxious and really concerned that their children could be involved in sex addiction or problematic sexual behavior. And so those are good conversations to have of like that could be a good time to really shed light on what's been going on in the marriage. Well, I am so glad that you said that that way because certainly there are plenty of um, institutions that believe that you can do family disclosures. But one of the things that I really, I really talk to parents about is not wanting to scar a, a child, whether the child's 8, 10, or 18, adult stuff is adult stuff. And so really keeping it generic but honest at least allows that child an opportunity to know what the problem is without knowing the details. And what I know to be true is that you can't ever take away details. And kids typically need to love both their parents and have relationships with them. Now, we probably have some partners that have not been able to trust someone with compulsive sexual behavior. You know, maybe they had a prostitute to the home. Maybe they they looked and downloaded child pornography even though they had not hurt their own child. And in those kind of situations, there's probably going to need to be some different boundaries, correct? Are you there? I think I might just have lost her. Let's see if we can get her back on the line. Hold on. There we go. I'm getting her back on the line. Did you were you able to hear all that even though for whatever reason you I was radio yeah, I cut out a I cut out a little bit, but um you were asking just about kind of the special situations where there's maybe the trust lost with a maybe prostitute in the home and um, child pornography. And I, yeah, I think it's important too that we talk about um, one of the biggest issues that I face with children and that's the secret keeper children. Um, These are the kids that find out about dad's problematic sexual behavior before mom, before discovery happens. Uh, I've had countless kids, be able to come in my office and kind of do, I call it an emotional vomit where they come in and I just say, okay, what do you got? I know you know something. And they can kind of get it off their chest and really share what they've been holding on to because they don't want to tell mom. They don't want to be the cause of any issues. And I think it's important to know that these images can be very traumatizing to little kids if they see maybe sexting pictures or chats. There's been a lot of, you know, if social accounts are left open, these kids kind of can see that and can understand what's going on even before it all comes out. And so that's where these special cases are so 
difficult and there's really not a ton of support out there, but hopefully we'll get there where um, the boundaries absolutely have to change. The, the format of disclosure or how open you talk about it, it does have to change because you can't gaslight a kid. Once they know something, you have to kind of meet them where they're at and not um, continue to kind of keep them out of the dark. And so that's difficult, and that's where you reach out to professionals. You reach out to counselors or child mental health specialists or call APSATs, call the coaches, um, get more insight into your special unique situation because it is it's hard and I wish it could be cookie cutter but it's so unique to each child and each acting out behavior and each family system that um, you deserve that specialized treatment and you deserve to kind of know how to treat your family in the best way possible yeah very very well said and, and like always there are all these specialized situations that require different schools of advice. And so that's why mm-hmm. you, we can't expect you to know as a partner or an addict how to handle things. You really need to, to talk with somebody who does have that expertise. Now, tell us, um, in general, how do you think that sex addiction or problematic sexual behavior affects the family system at large? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's one that I focus on kind of later down the road once trauma has subsided, where the families or the things that I'm seeing consistent with the families that I work with is that there's some really interesting family roles and family norms and covert contracts within the family. And so these things are, um, I mean, sex is a really good topic to kind of understand how that flows in the family of like, who talks about sex? Who's in charge of educating the children? Who's in charge of um, the emotional life of the children? Because what we know about sex addicts is that this is an intimacy disorder. And so just as we work really hard to repair the intimacy and build intimacy within the coupleship, I think we forget about the intimacy with the children, the intimacy in the family system, because without correction, we're continuing the pattern of not learning how to healthy, how to attach in a healthy way or how to have appropriate intimacy. Um, and I even think using the word Uh, intimacy with your child can sometimes come off as taboo where in our society it's it's very separate parents are parents and children are children but what we're learning is that children's emotional lives and emotional capabilities are so much more helpful in predicting how they're going to come out than their test scores or their IQs and so I think that's one of the biggest things that I see is Families coming in at the beginning of treatment are really fragmented. Everyone has their own um, load, their own understanding, their own value system, and it's not integrated as a family or as an identity. And the families that I work with to kind of break down those walls, it's just incredible to see the growth and the 
safety and the joy that can be produced from a terrible thing like sex addiction. I've seen it just transform families and create new healthy connectedness, which is so exciting and so encouraging, I think, in our field right now. Oh, I 100% agree. So now, if people want to work with you or to talk with you about services that you offer, how can they get a hold of you? So they can go to our website. I'm in a practice. I'm in a group, a wonderful group practice in Washington State in Bellevue. And so they can go to our website, pacificbehavioralhealth.com, or they can email me at j-e-i-d-e-n-s at pacificbehavioralhealth.com. And I love just doing consultation phone calls with people Um, I think I've said it a couple of times where working with kids and working with families is not cookie cutter and um, it can be helpful to just reach out and have a conversation to just get your story out there and to get some good solid advice on where to go. I think that's what I, I enjoy doing and I think that's helpful to partners is just helping them get organized to see what what would they even need if they did need services for their kids and how to go about doing it? Because it is difficult to find help for children. It's difficult to find the match. And um, that's a part of my job that I truly enjoy is just connecting people with the right resources. Thank you so much, Jessica, for, you know, sharing your time and expertise. And what I know is compulsive sexual problematic behavior is a generational problem for whatever reason, whether it's learned, it's discovered, it's genetic. Um, It can exist in generations to come. And so if we can interrupt that cycle and talk about it honestly and have both parents helping the child um, by explaining what's going on in a very generic way, then we can also have those tough conversations about sex, and that always will make the difference in whether a child decides to act out sexually or not. So not only have you helped children in a family system situation, but today you've helped us to and reminded us to go ahead and talk with our kids about a tough situation like sex. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carol. It was lovely being on. Well, yes, keep us posted on all the projects that you're doing, and we'll talk to you real soon. We will. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Hey, you too. Okay, again, that was Jessica Edens, and she is dedicated to kids, and that's what counts, dedicated to children and to families to make this situation better. Hey, we'll see you next week for more Partner Betrayal Recovery Radio here through absence.org. For more information, go to absence.org, the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists, to find a professional in your area who is trained to help you after sexual betrayal.